broadcasting from Parts Unknown. This is the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 25, Divine Omnipotence. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. That's right. I am broadcasting from literally off the highway in somewhere in Pennsylvania, off of I-80. I'm at a rest stop. I have been with people pretty nonstop the last uh, 72 hours, I guess, a little less than maybe 72 hours, and I didn't really have any free time. Uh, the only time I did was in the car, and so I am uh, have pulled over and uh, recording this bad boy on the side of the road. And so I've been traveling for the past week. I left uh, Los Angeles last Monday. Um, I went to Colorado, and I was able to meet up with uh, a couple people who listen. So shout out to Bo and Keith, as well as Mark in Iowa. But Mark in Iowa doesn't really count because I've known him before. Um, but he'd be upset if I didn't mention seeing him. And um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, divine omnipotence, kind of following that article in the New York Times. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at uh, omnipotence, uh, omniscience, and omnibenevolence and see kind of how we as Christians uh, address that issue. Um, but before we get to that, I want to uh, discuss, I mentioned last week meeting up with a woman named B in Durango, Colorado. So short little background, I preached in uh, Durango, Colorado two years ago, kind of all hell broke loose. And uh, B told me I made quite the impact on the community. So I don't really know uh, what all that entails, uh, positive, negative, good and bad. Um, I assume a little bit of all of that, um, because I imagine when the apostles went places and they uh, turned the world upside down, um, they probably spoke of it as making an impact, some of it good, some of it bad. And as the apostle Paul says, everywhere we go, we spread the aroma of Jesus to some, we're the aroma of life to others, uh, we are the aroma of death. And so we should expect that stuff to take place in towns and cities and everywhere that we go as we spread the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. And uh, it was a really actually uh, surprisingly good meeting. So if you recall, I met with her or she emailed me and I identified as a queer Christian, uh, which kind of, you know, sets you up for a certain discussion at least. And uh, when I got there, I was kind of, uh, I, I was surprised with uh, how gracious she was and how much she wanted to understand uh, genuinely where I was coming from. Um, she didn't totally have an agenda, but it was kind of funny because, you know, it's been two years, so there's been a gap, and she kind of mentioned how uh, mad she was, and she wasn't even a student. She wasn't there. She didn't hear me. She just kind of heard stories, and she knew the guy who threw the coffee on me, and so, you know, she heard stories and tales, and so she was expecting one thing, and that was kind of, and that actually kind of helped, and so she was expecting Westboro Baptist Church. I show up, I'm not Westboro Baptist Church, but that's what she's expecting, and I, I kind of know that at that point, if you are a street preacher or campus preacher, um, I mean, you're guilty by association. And so I'm always actually hesitant to tell anybody what I do. I was actually with some friends yesterday, and my friend's like, tell them what you do. I was like, I just do ministry on college campuses because anytime I tell anybody what I do, it's kind of like, how do I get out of this conversation? Um, so anyway, uh, I, I try to keep it vague um, rather than uh, too many particulars. Um, so she was expecting Westboro Baptist Church, and that was actually kind of helpful. So early on, we sit down, we start talking. She's mentioning how mad she was two years ago. She's like, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't even totally remember why I was so mad. And when I got the email, um, I wasn't sure if I should meet with you. And I contact some people. They're like, don't meet with them. And uh, she's like, ah, oh, no, what, what the heck? If, uh, if, if, you know, 
someone's coming across my path, I might as well meet with them. And she actually has a pretty good evangelical background or like, uh, yeah, evangelical is the best way to put it. She's, she wasn't reformed. Um, she was baptized in a vineyard church, seemed to have a pretty good, um, you know, probably originally a pretty decent Christian background. And, you know, through life experiences over the last uh, years, I'm not going to get into too many details of her life. Um, you know, she's kind of drifted into this more of a broader progressive evangelicalism because uh, th- there's definitely a Jesus element. And that's one of the things that's kind of interesting. She may uh, be a Christian. She may not. Um, who's just confused on some issues and the emotional appeal of the LGBT um, and even queer. And so, uh, you know, she was kind of repentant. Anyway, um, the one thing that was interesting, so she mentions the Westboro thing very early on. And so I kind of try to distinguish myself from Westboro and we start talking. And after a good hour, we spoke for two hours. After a good hour, um, she said something to the effect of, I didn't really expect you to talk about grace and love and all that sort of stuff. And she's like, I'm really happy with uh, you talk about those things. And it was kind of, that was kind of our transition point as well. So starting to get into a little bit of the queer and gay and um, trans trans issues, and stealing a line from Herman Bovink, one of the things I've mentioned in our discussion is that grace restores nature. And so when we were talking about sin, because there's a sense in which she wants trans, she wouldn't use the term sin because she doesn't really think they're sinful, um, but some element of brokenness, you know what I mean? I think everybody can step back and admit something's broken in the trans thing. Either the body's broken or the mind's broken, uh, but something's not aligning with something. So almost universally, everybody can say something's wrong here and we're trying to fix it. And, you know, the, the, the current cultural climate is you fix it by cutting stuff or adding parts, um, whereas the Christian says, no, grace restores nature, and that's what we're seeking to do. And so, so on, the, on the bright side, uh, for lack of a better expression, um, we, we have some common ground almost with everybody on the trans issue, the, obviously, but within that, the common ground is obviously different. We think of human rebellion. Um, when we think of brokenness, um, especially when it comes to the moral aspect of things, it is not like... Uh, being handicapped. It's not like having a broken leg or being uh, mentally retarded. And so that, that's the place where I think we're, uh, we're, we're losing the ground because I, even in certain evangelical circles, sin is, is not straight up a moral issue per se, um, but it's being thrown under this broader term of brokenness and messiness and stuff like that. And that stuff is true. And, you know, moral rebellion creates messiness and breaks things. Um, but our moral rebellion is not... Um, straight up like a broken arm or mental retardation or a physical handicap. And we have to distinguish those things because if we don't, um, we're we're actually conceding the narrative and we have to keep moral connotations and human responsibility. And even as we reject free will, it's uh, it's not in the biological determinant sense of the word. And so our rejection of free will isn't that man's not culpable and has a will and has a free will. We just don't think he has a free will and the ability to return to God because he's dead in his sins and transgressions. And we have to grasp that. So anyway, we start getting into trans thing and I mentioned the grace restores nature and it's like she's never heard that before. And so that was kind of a, a good point um, because she's like, she even kind of stopped and the grace restores nature and even thought about it, uh, for a minute and kind of went through the resurrection and the fall and, uh, how Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is restoring that. And what the ultimate debate ended up coming down to is sola scriptura and whether or not we can interpret the text and understand the text properly. And the good thing about our discussion is that we were able to start off with Westboro Baptist Church. And so an hour and a half later, when we start to get into the particulars of, 
uh, the text and saying, here's what the text teaches. And she says, well, I think it's all just interpretation. And, you know, it's open to so many different interpretations and you're interpreting it your way and I'm interpreting it my way. And I think they're both valid. Um, I was able to go back, uh, bring up Westboro and just say, do you think Westboro Baptist Church's interpretation of the text is valid? And uh, she goes, well, they're crazy beep, uh, crazy people. And I said, well, they may be, but do you think their interpretation's valid? And she, she kind of conceded no. And from there, you say, okay, so we can understand the text, and you understand the text. You think you understand it actually right, and they understand it wrong. And so why is this issue uh, radically different? And she seemed to uh, kind of concede uh, that point. Uh, and I think that discussion uh, comes at a good time to discuss uh, divine um, omnipotence, because two things. One, I, I did think about recording uh, the conversation, uh, but I couldn't allow myself to record it without her knowing, and then I felt like it would have been odd as if I asked her to record it. So you get my recap. Perhaps she listens to this, and she's like, that's not at all how it went. So um, I thought it went really well. And one of the things, meeting with her, and even as you think about these various issues, and you think of the rise of the LGBT issue, and even in the church, as it seems to be conceding, um, I do think like the doctrine of divine omnipotence uh, needs to be grasped. As we look out over the world and we look at the madness in the church, like Revoice and uh, men like Greg Johnson in the church uh, who are kind of promoting uh, gay Christianity and that sort of stuff, um, is there divine omnipotence to change the hearts and minds of what seems to be an overwhelming flood? And I think if you're a um, Jew under Pharaoh's power and you're looking at uh, Egypt dominate and rule you, or if you're a Jew in uh, Babylonian exile and you're looking, you know, you're at the shores of Babylon, uh, you know, where it says at the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. Um, because, yeah, it seems to be that Yahweh's power is broken and we, his people, are under the dominion and rule of other people rather than Yahweh. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has all authority under heaven and earth. And we need to grasp uh, divine omnipotence, not in an abstract philosophical sense, but in a very practical, um, redemptive sense. And this is from uh, John frames the doctrine of God. He says this, Redemption itself contradicts all human expectations. It is God's mighty power entering a situation that, from a human viewpoint, is hopeless. God comes to Abraham, who is over 100 years old, and to Sarah, far beyond the age of childbearing, and he promises them a natural son. Sarah laughs, but God asks, Is anything too hard for the Lord? God's omnipotence intervenes, and Isaac is born. The omnipotence is the power of God's covenant uh, promise. So that's what we need to begin to grasp with divine omnipotence. It's uh, God's power of his covenant promise. And so he's able to accomplish his will, and there is nothing that can thwart his will. And I think we all intellectually assent to that. Um, but the way we treat people, the way we interact with the world around us, often, I think, demonstrates that we're not persuaded of that. And so when there's that wicked person, you're like, oh, God will never say, they can never be saved, they're so bad. Um, we kind of show that we deny things like total depravity, even though we assent to it. And we also are practically den de denying that salvation uh, is the work of the Lord. But John Frame goes on to say, the Hebrew text literally reads, is any word of God void of power? God's powerful word comes into the world of sin and death and promises salvation. Isaac will continue the covenant, and from him, in God's time, will come the Messiah, who will save his people from their sins. When the Messiah comes, he will be born, not to a barren woman like Sarah, but to a virgin, an even greater manif manifestation of God's omnipotence. So to, Mary, the angel echo, so to Mary, the angel echoes God's promise to Abraham, nothing is impossible with God. So God's word never returns to him void. It is his omnipotence 
doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Apart from God's power, we could expect only death and eternal condemnation, but he brings life in the place of death. So the resurrection of Christ becomes a paradigm of divine power in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. A God who can raise people from the dead can do anything. He is God who's worthy of trust. And so that's the backdrop of divine omnipotence. And so it's not an ability to uh, manipulate language. So uh, to start off, let's say the, the Bible is pretty explicit that there are things that God cannot do. So for example, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, um, Paul says, uh, for God cannot deny himself. That's in the context. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot uh, deny himself. And then in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 18, um, basically on God making a promise, and he says that God, uh, when he made his promise to Abraham, he did not swear by anyone greater than him. There is no power over him. And so he is the almighty, might be another way to think about omnipotence. It's, it's his power. There is no power above him uh, that he bows down to. So uh, verse 13 says, uh, since he had no one uh, by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So, uh, and as we see in the what we believe in the gospel, God has kept his promise. But as well, in verse 18, it says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And so God does not do the logically contradictory. And so if someone asks, can God make a uh, four-sided triangle? Well, that's just not what a triangle is. And so since God is truth, he can't contradict himself. And so God does not lie. And, and a lie would be saying that uh, that square is actually a triangle, assuming we have all basic definitions down. And so God does not do the logically impossible. He is the Logos. Um, and so there, there are some more broader philosophical questions, like can God make a rock so big uh, that he can't lift it? And in this uh, opinion piece in the New York Times, A God Problem uh, by Peter Atherton, I actually... Uh, think the simplicity of the way in which he actually answers, can God make a stone so big uh, that he cannot lift it? Um, uh, you know, barring from Aquinas, I, th- I think the, the, the answer is actually in, by definition, uh, God cannot do, uh, you know, by definition, the unliftable. And so as he says here, thus, God cannot lift what is by definition unliftable, just as he cannot create a square circle or get divorced, et cetera, because it's just an issue of definitions at the point. It's not an issue of power, actually. And so, um, so I think that's the basic trajectory when people want to bring up issues of omnipotence. But the real uh, rub begins to come in, and we're going to look at this uh, more next week, is actually in a world uh, where there is suffering. And so um, uh, Adderton ends up asking the question, um, can God make a world where there is no evil? And if he didn't, why not? And that's where this kind of ties into us Christians wanting a sound doctrine of creation because our argument is that the original creation was very good. He ends up uh, quoting uh, Charles Darwin, and we don't have a Darwinian view of at least humanity. Um, even within Orthodox Christianity, there's some debate whether or not there was um, death prior to the fall, at least with the animal kingdom. I don't think there was any with Adam. Um, but, but there was no suffering as we would understand it today, and that the ruptured cosmos that we live in is a result of Adam's rebellion. So when he asks a question, you know, can God make a world where there is no evil? Well, he did, and human rebellion introduced evil, and we also believe that in the resurrection of the body, uh, at least in the new heavens and new earth, uh, there will be no suffering, although we believe that there will be eternal suffering for those um, outside of Christ. And so when he asks why didn't he, our answer is, well, he did, and we've rebelled against God. And so the question becomes one of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnibenevolence regarding uh, the will of man and everything else. So we're going to look at that 
a bit more next week, but I just wanted to lay out the basic idea that when it comes to uh, divine omnipotence, uh, the Bible's very explicit that there are things that God cannot do. So when I'm on campus and someone usually ends up asking, do, I, do you believe that God is all good? Yes. Uh, do you believe that God is all knowing? Yes. Do you believe that God is all powerful? Uh, when they ask me the all powerful, I would say, ah, it depends on what you mean by that, because uh, there are people like Descartes who believes that God can even do the logically impossible. Uh, but at that point, you can't really reason with them, because if God can do the logically impossible, any argument you make that's predicated on logic can easily be contradicted. So it kind of becomes an impossible uh, discussion for those who think that uh, omnipotence means uh, absolutely anything, including uh, the irrational. So I say, eh, and I say, well, the Bible says there are things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. And, you know, God is love. God is justice. Um, he can't not be those things. And so there's an essential nature to God's character. And we want to maintain that as we discuss uh, divine omnipotence. So we don't want to bow down to uh, the God of the philosophers as a Descartes may and just create an irrational being. Uh, but the very nature of rationality is rooted in the character of God. God is truth and all that sort of stuff. Stuff. And so he cannot do contrary uh, to his nature. So that's the trajectory. Um, and next week, we're going to get into the idea of uh, omnibenevolence um, and maybe, maybe even brush on his omniscience, because those two things are going to uh, rub um, one another in the mind of most people. If, if God knows the future and he allowed evil to exist, why did he do it? Those things are going to coincide with one another. So we're going to look at that next week. Uh, so if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, I should get to New York City uh, on Tuesday uh, night, July the 16th. And so, Lord willing, uh, if you're in the area, I'm going to try to preach uh, maybe Wednesday night uh, in Union Square. So if you're free, come on out and join us um, and all that sort of jazz. So, yeah, may the Lord bless you. Keep your questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations. Feel free to reach out. Keith at Campus Preacher dot com or at campus evangel on the twitter take care God bless. Bank, precious seed in his hand hoping and hope that he might see it grow knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom he runs on his way there's no time to be going slow hurry Take what you've got